All right. Well, thanks for having me back, guys. You know I love talking about apologetics. I told you that a couple of weeks ago. I don't know that I can top that definition. That was so clear and concise and well told. Good job, Johnny. Way to go. So anyway, apologetics, in case you didn't hear that great definition, is simply this. It's the ability to study and give reasons for what you believe. That's it. Scientific, historical, factual reasons for your faith. That's what we're talking about. That's what this series has been about. So I've been giving you some scientific reasons to believe in the existence of God. That's what I've been doing, right? I spoke to you guys two weeks ago. I have one thing I want to talk about this week. But before I jump into it, let's review what we discussed last time I spoke. So we talked about a few things. We talked about how important it is to study apologetics. It's important to have good reasons for your faith. And it's important for a couple of reasons. One, we can have confidence in what we believe. We can be confident that there's a God. We can be confident that he's real. And when somebody comes at us and tries to intimidate or make fun of us or tell us we're stupid or dumb or believe in a fairy tale, we can have confidence that we are correct, right? That's one important thing. Something else, I actually didn't talk about this last time I spoke, but it's still interesting. Someone mentioned it now. Another reason this is important, I believe, is because it helps us really deepen our praise and worship of God. You have to engage both your minds and your hearts when you're worshiping God. There's this saying, I don't know where it came from, so I can't give credit to it, but I really like it. The saying goes like this, the heart cannot rejoice in what the mind rejects. The heart cannot rejoice in what the mind rejects. You have to include all of your being when you're worshiping God. And it will make your worship and praise so much deeper. So it's important to study apologetics for a few reasons. Then we talked about the importance of taking ownership of your faith. We talked about a definition of faith. That faith can be defined in a couple of ways. Oftentimes we think of faith as a blind faith. That whole idea that I could believe there's an invisible dragon in this room if I wanted to. And everybody would look at me like I was silly because there's no reason to believe that, right? But sometimes that's what we think of faith. That it has to be this blind faith. And while there is an aspect of blindness that can be to faith, it's not complete blindness. We will still have reasons to believe that God's going to take care of us. We just don't necessarily know exactly what that's going to look like all the time. That's often what we think of when we think of blind faith. However, there's another aspect of faith that we often forget or ignore, and that's the reasonable side of faith. We can have great reasons to believe what we believe, but in order to have those reasons, we have to do a little bit of work. We have to ask questions, and don't be afraid to ask questions. Everybody has questions. If you don't have questions, then you're not thinking. Ask questions and ask the hard ones. But the next part is the hard part. We have to seek answers. You have to actually do the work to find the answers. We can't be lazy. We can't be caught up in our culture of amusement. I don't know if you remember that from last time I spoke. We're obsessed with not thinking. We have to do the work. All right, and then we moved into the actual scientific argument that I made the last time I spoke, which was the cosmological argument. And that argument simply states this, that God created the universe out of nothing, that there was nothing and then God created everything. We use science to show that the universe had a starting point, that there was a point where there was no universe. We used two scientific arguments to show that. We talked about the second law of thermodynamics, and I know it's a big word, right, but we said it simply means this that the universe is using up its energy and it's not replacing that energy, so therefore it's not eternal. Then we talked about that the universe is expanding, which means if you go back in time, everything would crunch up on itself and explode and you'd have nothing. 
Both of those things show that the universe had a beginning. That's really important. Then we also talked about how scientists aren't always as objective as they make themselves sound. That science isn't always as objective as they make it seem. And we had scientists like Einstein who cheated and faked numbers to get a conclusion that he wanted. And then we had scientists like Eddington who actually said, I hate this conclusion and I want to find a loophole, right? He says it's repugnant. I hate it. So we have scientists that aren't, they aren't always as objective as they make themselves sound. And that led us then to this conclusion, that if there was a beginning, there was absolutely nothing, then what does that mean about the cause? That means the cause can't be attached to space, time, matter, energy. It has to create those things, so it can't be a part of those things. So that means the cause is supernatural and timeless or eternal. Okay, that's what I talked about the last time I was here. Just to refresh your memories. All right. Today, we're going to go into another argument, a scientific argument, and it's called the fine-tuning argument. Now, it sounds complicated. It's really not that complicated. Here's what the fine-tuning argument states. It states that the universe is finely tuned so that we can have life on Earth. And if it's finely tuned, then there must be an engineer or an intelligence or a fine-tuner that created the universe so we can have life. Think about it like a car. A car is finely tuned. The engine is tuned so that that car can drive. If any part of the engine doesn't work, the car won't drive. It's finely tuned so it can drive. That's the same for our universe. It's finely tuned so that we can have life. Turns out there's about 35 things in the universe that have to be just as they are right now for you to be able to be sitting here this morning and have any kind of life on earth, 35. And by the way, that's a conservative estimate. Some estimates say there's upwards of 100 things. We're just going to go with the bare minimum, 35 on earth. And if any one of those 35 things was different, we wouldn't exist. So we're going to talk about all 35. No, I'm just kidding. We're going to talk about three of those today. I saw some of you panic. Don't worry. We're only going to talk about three today. We're going to keep it real short. The first constant or parameter or thing that I want to talk about that has to be just right is called gravitational force. And all that is is gravity. Guys, I mentioned gravity to you last time I spoke because Isaac Newton, you know, a whole gravity thing, the apple falling from the tree. We talked about it a little bit. Turns out gravitational force has to be just right for us to be here today. And gravity does a lot of things. One of the things it does is it keeps the earth in the orbit that it has around the sun, right? The earth travels in a very specific path. Gravity is responsible for that. It's also responsible for a few other things, like how far you can throw a ball before it hits the ground, or how much we weigh on Earth. Gravity has, has significance on all of that. And the gravitational force has to be just right, otherwise we wouldn't live here. Here's what would happen if you just cranked up, actually cranked down the force a little bit. If you just turned it down just a little bit, we'd have no stars, we'd have no planets, we'd have no galaxies, we'd have no structure, so we'd have nothing. If you just turn the gravity down just a little bit, if you turned it up a little bit, things get kind of interesting. So I told you the Earth travels in a path around the sun. If you turn the gravity up, instead of going in a kind of circle like this, it really elongates and goes far out and then comes close to the sun. It goes far out and comes close. What would happen is when it's far out, we would all freeze to death, probably. And then when it comes close, we would all burn to death, probably. 
If that didn't kill you, which it probably would, let's be honest, but if that didn't kill you, the earth wouldn't, if you turned up gravity, the earth wouldn't be able to support its weight anymore, which means it would crumble on itself and we would all fall into the earth's core and be crushed by rocks and we would burn up and melt away as we're falling down. That would probably kill you, right? And if that didn't kill you, if you turned up gravity a little bit, the sun would actually just stop to exist anyway. That would probably kill you. So gravity has to be just right for you to live on this planet. That's one of the things that we're talking about. Remember, there's 35 of these. That's one. Let me tell you the second one I like to talk about. It's the oxygen levels we have in our atmosphere. Turns out, those are also pretty specific. Oxygen makes up about 21% of our atmosphere, about, which is great for breathing. That's what we need to be able to breathe, right? If you turn it up a little bit, let's say we turn up to 25%, then you have fires popping up all over the place, and we would die and burn up, and the fires are just randomly or spontaneously popping up because we have too much oxygen. If you turn it down a little bit, let's say we go to 15%, so we make oxygen 15% of the Earth's atmosphere. Well, now we don't have enough oxygen to breathe, and we'd all suffocate to death, and we would just die, right? So oxygen has to be just right for us to live here. You're getting the idea. There's 35 of these. We have to have gravity just right. We have to have oxygen just right. If either of those things are off, we don't exist. Let me talk about the third one. This one kind of blows my mind. The third one that I want to talk about today is the expansion rate. So I told you the universe was expanding. And it is expanding as it comes, as we come to find out, at a very precise and specific rate. We're going to talk about that in just a second. But let me tell you what would happen if it expanded just a little bit faster. If the universe was moving just a little bit quicker, then gravity wouldn't be able to hold things together and there would be no structure. You wouldn't have the earth orbiting the sun. We'd be moving too fast. So we wouldn't be able to survive because nothing would hold together. If it was expanding just a little bit slower, then gravity would actually pull everything in together and you'd have planets bumping into each other. We'd bump into the sun. Everything would explode and collapse. We'd all crunch up and die. There would be no life right? It's expanding at a very specific rate. Now, I'm going to try to explain to you how specific it is. I don't understand this number. I've tried to understand this number. I, I, I can't, but I'm going to try to explain it to you, right? Here's the, the precision of this expansion rate. It is tuned to one part, so one in, ready? One in a hundred <clears throat> billion, 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 billion. That's one with 120 zeros after it. That's how specific this rate is. Now, that means nothing, right? That's such a big number, we don't understand it. So I'm going to try to illustrate it to you and tell you what the odds are of getting a one in a hundred billion, 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 billion. Here are the odds. Stick with me. Try to understand this. We're going to take, pretend to take a target. I'm not going to tell you how big this target is yet. We're going to save that. We're going to take a target we're going to put it on the roof of Peace Church, all right? So we're going to put a target up here. And then we're going to go outside and get into our spaceship. I probably should have told you we have a spaceship. We're going to be taking a couple rides today. So we're going to go get into our spaceship, and we're going to shoot ourselves up in outer space, all right? So we have a target on Peace Church, shoot ourselves up in outer space, and we go hundreds of miles out into space, hundreds of miles. We get out of our spaceship, and we're floating around. We take out our dart, because we brought a dart with us. We're going to try to hit a bullseye on that target. 
We're hundreds of miles out in space. We take the dart and we throw it through space. And it goes hundreds of miles through space. Remember, the Earth is rotating and it goes into the Earth's atmosphere and it travels through the atmosphere and it comes down and it finds Peace Church and it sees the target and we hit a bullseye on that target. Now, that seems pretty impossible. But I didn't tell you how big the bullseye was. The bullseye that it has to hit must measure, to get these odds, to get one in a hundred, billion, 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 the bullseye that we have to hit, already we don't think we can hit that bullseye, it's already unbelievable, but the bullseye has to be one trillionth of one trillionth of an inch. That's less than the size of an atom. That's an insane number. I, I can't understand how specific that number is. Those same odds, going to outer space, throwing a dart, hitting a target, that small is the same thing as saying it's one part in a hundred billion, 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 billion. That's how specific that number is, and it has to be that number. If it were any more or any less, we wouldn't live here. You're getting the idea. There's 35 of these. I just told you three of them, but you could keep going, 35 more. That's crazy. So what would we think if we saw that we have this data, what's the most natural conclusion that we would come to? If you just, if you knew nothing about anything and you saw that, you would think here's the most natural conclusion, that there's some kind of fine tuner, that there's some kind of designer, that there's some kind of engineer who set up this universe exactly so we could have life on this planet. To illustrate this, there's a scientist who's kind of popular, his name's John Polkinghorne, and he has this interesting explanation to kind of explain why this is the most natural explanation. So I'm going to try to tell you his, his illustration here. He says, imagine we get back into our spaceship, and we go back into outer space, and as we're flying around, we see a room. So we dock our spaceship, we get out of our spaceship, we go into the room, we open the door, and when we go in, we see a control room, and there's just dozens and dozens of dials, like 35 of them. And as we're looking, we notice that they're all tied to something in the universe. Like, you have one set to 21% for oxygen. You have one set to the gravitational force. You have one that's set to one part in 100 billion, 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 billion for the expansion rate. And you see 35 of these. And you're like, hmm, I wonder what would happen if I just changed one of these real quick. And you go and you twist one and, oh, no, we all die. Right? What would you think if you saw a room that had all of these dials in this cosmic control room? What would you think? He says... You would think the most natural thing is that somebody came to that control room, messed with those dials, and put them right where they needed to be so that we could have life. That's the most natural explanation. And as it turns out, that's actually what a lot of, a lot of scientists agree with that. They won't tell you about it, but they agree with it. Let me show you. I've got a couple of quotes here from some different scientists. The first one, his name is Fred Hoyle. Fred Hoyle, by the way, is, this is kind of interesting. He's an astronomer, but he was an atheist, a strong like staunch atheist. It was actually this argument, the fine-tuning argument, that caused him to start changing his mind because this is way too improbable. He started later in his career sounding like he believed in God. I can't say he was a Christian, but he started sounding like he believed in God, and it was because of this. Look what he said. He said, a common and sense interpretation of this data suggests that a super intellect has monkeyed with physics and chemistry and biology. We're not even talking about chemistry and biology, we're talking about physics. He says, if you just saw this in physics, like you, you would assume 
there's some kind of super intelligence out there. That's what you would assume. He's a scientist. He was not a Christian. He just says, that's what we would think. Go on to the next one. This guy, George Greenstein, goes a little bit further. Here's what, he's also an astronomer. He says, the thought insistently arises that some supernatural agency, or rather agency with a capital A, which sounds like he's referencing God, must be involved. Is it possible that suddenly, without intending to, we stumbled upon scientific proof of the existence of a supreme being? This is a scientist who just said, oops, did we just prove there's a God using this argument? Is that what we just did? See, scientists know this is the most natural explanation. A lot of them do. But oftentimes they don't talk about it. And sometimes you'll have like this next quote, scientists who say things like this. This to me is just astounding. This next guy, his name's MJ Reeves. He's a professor at Cambridge University. If you've never heard of it and you're thinking about applying to colleges, apply there. It's a pretty good one. See if you can get in. So he's a professor at Cambridge University. Here's what he said. He said the possibility of life as we know it depends on the values of a few basic physical constants. Those are the constants I was just telling you. There's actually about 35 of them. He says, yeah, it depends on a few physical constants. He's leaving out about 35. And is, in some respects, remarkably sensitive to their numerical value. That's an understatement. He says, oh, they're remarkably sensitive to where they need to be so we can live. I just told you, one of those numbers was one in 100 billion, 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 billion. Yeah, that's real sensitive. It has to be exactly that number. He's just like, oh, it's crazy. But look at his next statement. Nature does exhibit remarkable coincidences. That's his conclusion. He's like, oh, what a coincidence. It was just chance that we got this. That's crazy. Now, he's a smart guy. Like those other two scientists, he knows a lot about science. And his conclusion was, eh, it's a coincidence. It can happen by chance. Let's talk about that. Let's see what are the chances of this actually happening. Because here's the thing. Nobody who thinks about this actually believes that chance can produce what I just told you. It's not possible. We're going to talk about why. We don't trust chance. Chance is not a good explanation when we're dealing with small probabilities. It never is. We never would assume chance designs something that's improbable. For example, I have a lock. Can you guys be quiet, please, while I'm talking, I have a lock. What are the chances I can open this lock at random? Do we think chance is a good explanation? You can see up on the slide, there's 40 numbers on this dial, 40. The chances I can get the first one are 1 in 40. That I can just randomly get the right number, 1 in 40, all right? I have to get another one because there's three numbers I have to get to open this lock. By the way, I probably shouldn't assume you know what a lock is. So this lock you have to get three numbers just right, and then it'll pop open, right? If you get the three numbers right, you can open it. It's like a basic locker or bike lock. So the odds of me getting that first number are 1 in 40. The odds of me getting the second number, 1 in 40. The odds of me getting the third number, 1 in 40, just by chance. All right, do you guys know how to figure out what the odds of me getting all three at once are? What do I have to do to those numbers to figure out the odds of getting all three of these in one try? Multiply. Hey, math scholars, good job. Multiply, that's right. When we multiply them together, this is what we get. A 1 in 64,000 chance of opening this lock at random. 1 in 64,000. That means there's 64,000 possible combinations, right? So it means I can stand up here. Let's say it takes me one second to get to, get a, to a number. One second, one second. It took me three seconds to get a combination. 
If it takes me three seconds to go through all 64,000 combinations, I would be here for 133 days. And that's without taking breaks to eat and sleep and do anything else. I just have to mess with this lock. 133 days. But remember, we're talking about chance, which means I could repeat numbers because I can't do this systematically. I, have to, I, could, I could be repeating. I could be here for years trying to open this lock. So how about it? Do you guys think we can do it? No? Come on. Come try it. Come try it. Open it. We'll see how you do. All right. Pick your first number at random. I don't have to watch. I know it's not going to work. All right, pick your second number at random and your third number. Pull it. Ah, no. All right, who else wants to try? All right, come on. We'll see if you can get it. See, guys, chance isn't a good explanation. Watch. Do you guys think she's going to get it? No. Go ahead. Oh, who said that? Lies. Lies. All right, let's see. First number, second number. Third number, give it a yank. No? Who else? Let's come try. Come on up. We could do this all day, guys. They're going to get it? See, we don't trust chance. Nobody, it's not going to happen. Just going to try it. Third number, and yank it. Did you get it? All right, guys, we'll do one more. Who wants to try it? One more. I see some hands in the back. Katie, come on up. Katie Ash, she's going to try it. Last one. I can't do this forever, unfortunately. We don't have 133 days. But did you notice they're not communicating? They're not telling each other the numbers. They could be choosing the exact same numbers. That's not, they're not working. This could take forever. Katie's not going to get it either. She's going to try the first number. And it's going to be whatever second number, whatever third number, and go ahead and try to pop it open once you get done there. No way. No. You're 100, there's 64,000 possible. There's no way that that happened. You've got to be kidding me. Oh. All right. I have to go home. Like, my, my message is over. That's it. That's it. The Holy Spirit. Okay. Okay. That's what it was. All right, guys. Listen. You're proving my point for me. You're proving my point for me. Listen, we learned two things just now. Two things. One, chance is a terrible explanation. We don't trust it. Listen to your response. You guys don't trust that she just opened that by chance. Chance is a terrible explanation. You don't believe it. You, your response tells me you don't believe it. There was a 1 in 64,000 chance she was going to open that at random. And you all just responded like it was the most incredible thing you've ever seen in your lives. We're not talking about really small probabilities, like one part in 100 billion, 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 billion. We're talking about one in 64,000. Chance is terrible. But here's the second thing that you guys just showed me, and this is really interesting. Many of you think I probably cheated, that Katie and I colluded, that I might have given her the number beforehand so that she could open it. And here's the thing. You're right. That's exactly what happened. I designed this scenario so that Katie could open this lock None of you believe she did it by chance. Not really. You were in too much shock and awe to believe that happened. And a lot of you thought I cheated. Here's the question. We sometimes assume things are designed. We, dis we assume design at certain times. The question is, when do we assume design? What has to happen for you to believe something was designed, like this scenario? 
So I want you to take a second to talk about it at your table. I want you to try to figure out. This is a hard question, guys. This is not easy. So you take some time to figure out. When is it? What causes us to assume something was designed like this scenario? Go ahead. You have a couple minutes. All right, guys, listen up. We don't have time to talk more about it, so we're going to jump right into to an answer here. I hope you guys are able to figure out something. This is a hard question, though. This is tough. What causes us to assume something is designed? But it's really not that complicated when you break it down to its parts. There's only two requirements that we have to have to assume that something was designed. Just two. The first one, we have to have an improbable event, a really improbable event. But that's not enough. We have to have the second part. The second part is crucial. We have to have a meaningful pattern or a functional outcome. And if we have both of those things, then we assume something was designed. So for example, with the lock, all right, it is really improbable that you would all choose the same numbers, the people that came up here, right? So you're probably choosing unique numbers. That's really improbable. You're choosing unique numbers each time. But just choosing a unique number isn't enough to assume something was designed. We have to have the second part. It's choosing just the right numbers so that we have a functional outcome, opening the lock. When we have both of those things, then you assume it was designed. That's why you thought I cheated, because we had a unique number that actually did something. It opened the lock. We assume design. Let's take a look at another example. Mount Rushmore is a pretty good example, so it should be up on the screen. If you knew nothing about anything. You, you don't even have to be a part of an, you don't have to be an American citizen. Let's just say you're walking through the woods and you come across, you come out into a clearing and bam, there's Mount Rushmore. Nobody is going to say, oh wow, look what rain and wind and erosion did. No, nobody's going to look at that and think, wow, that's just a crazy chance. No. Instead, we're going to look at that and we have our two, we have our two requirements. We have our incredibly improbable event, and that is the unique shapes on the side of the mountain. The shapes, the crevices, and all that, but it's not just the unique shapes that do it, because if you can imagine with me, to the sides of Mount Rushmore, to the sides of the faces, those are also unique patterns. You probably wouldn't find those patterns anywhere else in nature either. It's not just having something that's improbable. It's the second part that we need as well. It has to be improbable, but it also has to have a meaningful pattern or recognizable, a functional outcome. And in this case, our shapes and crevices and cracks all combine to make faces, human faces, that you might recognize to be presidents. So our conclusion is this. Mount Rushmore was designed. An architect or a sculptor or a, sci or a scientist, maybe, an artist came across and actually went up to that mountain and made those faces. Nobody thinks it was done by chance. We assume design when we have those two things. Let's go to the next slide. I want you guys to try it at your table. I want you to apply what I just did to Mount Rushmore to this picture. I want you guys to go through the logic. Why do you assume that that was designed? Break it down the way I just did with Mount Rushmore. Go. All right, guys, listen up. We're going to get back into it. So listen up. Let's look at the picture again together. You guys should have had a chance to talk about it and to break down the logic. So first off, nobody walking along the beach is going to come across this and think, oh, wow, the ocean must have washed up a, a seashell and the seashell must have drawn out that pattern. No, nobody's gonna think that that happened by chance. It's not possible because we have our two things, our two requirements present. First, we have unique shapes. Those are unique squigglies in the sand. 
but we have unique squigglies all over the beach. It's not just a unique squiggle that does it for us. It's the second part. It's the meaningful pattern or the functional outcome. And in this case, we have a message that we recognize and understand. And so you think that somebody came along and with their finger or with a stick drew the message in the sand. You think it was designed. And here's the thing. Anytime we have those two requirements, we always assume that the thing is designed, whatever we're looking at. That's true of the fine-tuning argument. That's why it's so powerful, because we have both of those things. We have an incredibly improbable event. I have this on the next slide if you go to it. We have our incredibly improbable event, which is the 35 highly specific and precise numbers that could be any number imaginable, but they are 35 that happen to work. That's our improbable event for our second thing, which is the functional outcome. They work together so we can have life on this planet. That's a pretty specific outcome that, that, that does a really specific function. We would always assume design in any other area. You would say a mind did that. That wasn't chance. That's why chance is a terrible explanation, which is why you have scientists like MJ Reeves is like, who said, oh, what a coincidence. What? No, it wasn't a coincidence. Nobody would think that was a coincidence, which is what our other two scientists told us. They said, you would think that was an intellect. You would think there's a supreme agency out there. Did we just stumble upon the existence of God accidentally? That's the natural conclusion, not coincidence. Which brings me back to that point I was telling you last time I spoke. Science isn't always as objective as what you think it is. You've probably heard in school somewhere or somebody tell you, wow, what a remarkable coincidence that everything is just set up this way. That's absurd. That is not logical and it is not scientific. That's a fairy tale but yet we're told that it's scientific. It's not. Science isn't always objective. We've mentioned that before. And sometimes scientists will come up with hypotheses or ideas that just don't really make sense. We saw that with Einstein. We saw that with Eddington. You'll hear scientists say that the universe came by chance. But this is also kind of interesting. There's another theory floating out right now. Right now, actually, this is going around and scientists are saying that this is scientific. There's another theory right now that they say explains all this fine-tuning that we're talking about. You ready for it? This is crazy. It's called the multiverse theory. <laughs> all right, do you guys, are you guys familiar with the multiverse? You should be if you watch Marvel movies, right? There's multiple universes. Here's what it actually states. The multiverse states this, that we live in a, universe, we live in a world that has an infinite number of universes. There's an infinite number. It just, there's some kind of machine, I guess, is just spitting out universes. All, all, like all the time. There's trillions upon trillions upon trillions. So we shouldn't be surprised to be in a universe that has just the right ones for life. That's the idea. Okay, there's a couple of big problems with this. The first one's a really big problem too. I don't know, I mean, I have a really big problem. The first thing here is that there's just no evidence for that. There's not even evidence of a single other universe, let alone trillions upon trillions upon trillions. We don't have evidence of one other universe, which <laughs> this is kind of ironic. We're often told that our faith in God is blind, that we're ignorant, that we, that we don't have good reasons to believe that. It's not scientific and we shouldn't believe things blindly. But if you believe the multiverse theory, that's the true definition of blind faith because there's not a single piece of evidence for it. It's the same thing as if I said there's an invisible dragon in this room. You all just told me earlier you'd laugh me out of the room. But scientists expect you to believe this 
and not be laughed out of the room. It's absurd. We should be able to stop with that and say there's no evidence, therefore, done, end of discussion. But we're going to go a step further because it's still, even if there was, even if the multiverse theory were true, it doesn't solve any problems. I'm trying to explain why. This gets a little bit complicated, so hang with me here. There's still the same problem. I try to imagine, let's say, let's say that they do find evidence of other universes. Great. Let's say they find an infinite number. Cool. I try to imagine what this must look like. Okay, we're going to get back on a rocket ship. We're going to go back into outer space, and we're flying around outer space. And we come to a door. So we open the door, and we step outside of our universe and close the door. And now we're in this, like, black darkness, and all around us, we see universes, just hundreds and thousands of them, all these universes. And as we're walking around this darkness in between the universes, we come up to this machine, this big machine. It has all these dials on it that are controlling those parameters I told you about, oxygen levels and expansion rate and gravity, and they're all just randomly turning, and this machine is just spitting out universe after universe after universe after universe, and it's just randomly changing those numbers. It's spitting them out, just trillions upon trillions. Okay, the question is, where did that machine come from? That machine is incredibly finely tuned itself. If it's going to be able to make our universe, which we just said is a finely tuned universe, you have to have a machine even more finely tuned that can make our universe. Let me try to explain it to you this way. There's another illustration here that kind of helps with this. I don't know, it's a little bit dated. I got this from a guy named uh, Robin Collins. You might not recognize what I'm about to say. Do you guys know what a bread machine is? Do your parents or grandparents use a bread machine? Anybody? Maybe not. A bread machine is you put a bunch of ingredients in this machine and it makes beautiful, tasty bread, right? So let's imagine that you have a bread machine and you're just bragging about it to your friend. You're like, dude, I have the best bread machine. It is the best machine. I put all these great ingredients in and it just makes the absolute best bread. Whoever designed this machine tuned it just right. They put all the right components in there. The computer chip's working great. It is the most perfect machine. This is the most finely tuned machine you could possibly have. It makes the best bread. And your friend comes along and says, it's no big deal. That's no big deal. We don't have to talk about an engineer or a fine tuner because for your machine because I have a machine that can make bread-making machines. So we don't need to talk about who engineered who what. There is no engineer. There is no fine-tuning. My machine just makes your machine. Ha. Do you see the problem? What? Who made this machine? This machine's even more finely tuned if it can make that machine. We, we still have the same problem. We didn't answer anything. So even if the multiverse theory were true, which first, there's no evidence for, at all, it is the true definition of blind faith, if you're going to say you believe it. It is the true definition of blind faith. But if there were evidence, it still doesn't answer the question. You still have to say, where are all these things coming from? Who's designing all of these? Where is this machine coming from? Who made it? Still, still doesn't answer anything. But yet, this is the modern theories that are being pushed out because we don't, scientists don't want to claim the most natural explanation, which is... It's all designed, that there's a fine-tuner, that there's an engineer, like what we just illustrated. Instead of that, they do this. This is craziness. So what have we learned so far? A couple of things. We talked about the cosmological argument, which tells us that at, in the beginning, there was absolutely nothing, and then there was something, and so the cause has to be outside of space-time, matter, and energy, which means the cause must be supernatural, and it must be eternal or timeless. We learned that through the cosmological argument. Then we talked about just today the fine-tuning argument, which tells us that the cause has to be supremely intelligent, 
has to know exactly what it takes to have life on this planet and had to set the universe to be just so, so that we could have life supremely intelligent. So supernatural, eternal, and supremely intelligent. And then Mr. Tony talked to you guys last week, and he talked about the Bible. And he gave you a biblical argument where he said that there's profound evidence for the divine authorship of Scripture and that it is historically accurate and it is trustworthy. So this leads us to, when we put all this together, go to the next slide for me. This leads us to a really interesting picture we're building here. We're starting to see that the Bible describes God as eternal, supernatural, and supremely intelligent. Knows everything about life and says he created life and time, by the way. And we see that the Bible is unlike any other religious book in that it has evidence of a divine author and it has been preserved throughout time. And it has withstood historic scrutiny and it has been proven to be accurate and consistent in even the smallest details. No other religious book holds up to that kind of scrutiny. None. Which leads us to this kind of concluding statement. We're seeing a great evidence to support that the God of the Bible exists and is the cause of everything we have around us and is who he says he is. It's fascinating. Now, guys, we don't have time to unpack much more than that. We just, we're doing a short series. We haven't answered all your questions. I know we haven't. Mr. Tony's going to come speak next week, but he's going to be talking about a different topic. There's still a lot more to talk about when it comes to science. There's more to unpack about cosmology. There's more to unpack about fine-tuning, a lot more, and it's really interesting. There's more than that. You can get into the biological argument, which talks about how we have life and just how it had to be created by God. It's fascinating. You can get into another argument that talks about right and wrong. How can you know that there's right and wrong? And how does God play into that? Fascinating, fascinating topics. But you have to do a little bit of asking questions. And then you have to do a little bit of follow-up and seeking answers. And then, like we said, you know, Mr. Tony talked about the Bible. You, there's a lot more to unpack about the Bible and about how we know that it's true. There's a lot more, so keep asking questions, keep trying to find answers, but come back next week to hear Mr. Tony explain how we can know that Jesus is who he said he was, and he's going to wrap up our discussion on apologetics. Mr. Mike, Pastor Mike.